0: Developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake. I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Joining me on the show today is John Reed, he's the president and founder of the JM Reed Group a global behavioural change organisation specialising in leadership development, sales effectiveness and skin enhancement. But before we get a chance to speak with John, it's a Leadership Hacking News. Recently, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella pointed out the power of empathy in an interview with Harvard Business Review. He connected empathy with not just taking care of people, but also to design thinking, to innovation, customer care and ultimately the bottom line. We've been taught since school that empathy means stepping into somebody else's shoes and seeing the world from their perspective. But truly powerful forms of empathy neither start or stop there. They reach all areas of our life and work. They help us feel seen and safe, connected to others and empowered to manage conflict with kindness and inclusivity. A truly empathic leader is proactive. Good leaders just don't solve problems when they arise, but they actively seek out ways to smooth the path for their people. Smoothing the way and removing obstacles requires empathy. It requires the ability to understand the wiring, the needs, the pace of people, and to respond accordingly. This kind of proactivity may require you to do your homework on the people you work with, understand their strengths and their challenges. It may also be required that you occasionally push back on things. And as difficult as those things may seem, the kind of investment in your people The compassion you need will really drive empathy and pay you back richly. Cognitive empathy is just what it sounds like. Empathy based on cognitive understanding. Somebody else's perspective. It doesn't require emotion from us, but it does require understanding and a willingness to engage with what is their understanding. Affective empathy is empathy that is based on emotion. When somebody cries or feels anger, this is affective empathy at work. A truly empathic leader, is inclusive. More than just seeing someone else's perspective, empathy means slowing down and seeing others needs, speeds and creeds, and then helping them find the environments that work best for them. An empathic leader is a leader who understands that not all of our brains are wired the same, taking time to see other people's perspectives, seeing them as individuals with unique wiring, with unique needs and unique motivations that creates them as an individual. So if you want the best work from the people that you work with to encourage innovation, design thinking, all of the good things that come from psychologically safe environments, then take your compassion and your empathy muscles out for a workout. Building empathy as a leader is a skill and it's a great investment. You can do it for yourself, your people and your organization all at a time when the world needs kindness more than ever. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. We'd love to hear your insights and your stories, so please get in touch with us. My special guest on today's show is John Reed. He's the president of the JM Reed Group, he's an entrepreneur and author of multiple books. I'm delighted to have John on the show. John, welcome to the Leadership Hacker Podcast.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you, Steve.
0: We always like to dive into our backstories of our guests because they provide such a great landscape to how people have arrived at doing what they're doing. So maybe we can start, John, by just digging into a little bit about your background and how you've arrived to do what you do.
1: I Thank you. Um, I think everything's, you know, everything's important and sometimes nothing's important, but uh, I'll leave that to the audience. But I'm the youngest of five and I grew up in Maryland, went to the University of Maryland and got an undergraduate degree. And at that point in time, in America anyway, you uh, companies would come interview you on campus. And I got interviewed and got hired by Dow Chemical. Uh, what's interesting there is that I'd never taken a chemistry course in my life. And there was a brief period where Dow would hire people that they thought were, were good communicators uh, for sales roles, despite having no chemical background. Right. And I joined them in my, that's the beginning of my chemical career, which I had great success in. I was actually in Chemical Week magazine as a rising star of the chemical industry back in the early 90s. Uh, so I was in sales, marketing, business, IP and L responsibility, sort of the classic path. Left all that behind to join the training and development industry because I had a real passion uh, around that, uh, around the idea that people could get better and wanted to get better if, if the development training was better. So I got into that industry uh, and worked for several different companies and ultimately started my own company 13 years ago.
0: And what was that pivotal moment for you when you thought, okay, now it's time for me to lead my business versus work for others?
1: It's a great question. And uh, the truth is I'm a four-time cancer survivor. And when in America, again, at that time, when you have cancer, you need health insurance. I had four kids and uh, I was the worker, so I had to have health insurance. And it's hard to have health insurance. Um, so I changed jobs to work for a company in Dallas, Texas, and we were negotiating for to be the head of sales. And I was asking for, you know, compensation, should they decide to let me go? And they said, no, that'll never happen. They'll never let me go. And, uh, but I did negotiate health coverage for, for a period of time. And within three months, they let me go. They were having real cash flow problems and they couldn't really afford me. They thought. Interestingly enough, they called me two weeks later and asked me to come back because I made the point to them that they were they had a revenue problem, not a cost problem. But they thought they had a cost problem. Let me go start my that that was the driver to start my own company because I I had that safety net of having health coverage and I could take a chance. Finally,
0: yeah, it's funny, isn't it? How unconsciously we sometimes just need a little bit of security to give us that entrepreneurial flair or spirit to move in different directions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because we're always making risk reward calculations, right? I, it's part of my uh, the work that I think about when I do leadership or sales training. And you watch current behaviors and what be- people are, how they're behaving. You know, unconsciously they're making this risk reward calculation, and oftentimes they're making it incorrectly, uh, and that's why they're behaving the way they are. And so sometimes you have to need, need to have them see the a different calculation for some of these behaviors.
0: Yeah, definitely so. Now. You nonchalantly just said, yeah, four-time cancer survivor. That is, one, it's incredibly unusual to survive cancer four times. But what I've learned from having met you previously, John, is you have this huge amount of resilience that comes from having been able to battle through these different events time after time. And I just wondered, you know, how much of that drives your current approach and how much of that helped you with
1: resilience? Oh, it's helped me greatly. Um, I had a type of cancer that you should, frankly, die from. It was a spindle cell sarcoma, which is a very rare sarcoma, um, and they don't know much about it and all that good stuff. You know what, to survive that, of course, you need others. So I had a strong social network, particularly my wife, uh, Rose. So, you know, you you need to have that. You also, what it does give you, I had a, a friend who was a New York Times writer, and he had the the chutzpah or whatever to ask me, you know, so what's good about having cancer? And I thought that's a gutsy question, isn't you know, it? Yeah. but uh, it is a good question. And what's good about it is it does give you perspective. You know, it does, it does, it does make you step back and and what, what really matters? Like, what am I doing? What matters? And for perspective, has been massive,
0: isn't it? In, in all of your work in life. And I've seen that through, you know, some of the articles you've read and some of the writings that you've done. There's lots of re, Recall to perspective and get people to think about that context.
1: Yes, I mean, I'm. If I could wave a wand across the world and if I had my wish, I just wish everybody knew they're just walking around with a perspective. They're not objectively right. They're just not. I mean, there's stuff, you know It's all subjective. Nobody. So it's just we're people walking around with perspectives. And unfortunately, we quickly, because of the way our brain processes and all the stuff we know, we click. We quickly go to right, you know, and us versus them and right versus wrong, when now it's just a different perspective.
0: I, I love the, the framing of that because we all do have a perspective, but from often we come from a position of being sure or being right or being wrong about things. How, how do you get people to think about reframing that perspective so that it can serve them well?
1: Yeah, I, I think with any, with, when we look at learning and development, we're very learner centric. We're very much who's the learner and where's their head at and why are they acting the way they do and do they even know that? And, and we don't approach anything from right, wrong, or from bad to good. People aren't behaving, I mean, bad's bad and bad's obvious. So we don't, you know, we're not going to say, but most people are, you know, behaving good. They just, they just could be better, better versions of themselves, better, better decision makers, better. Build trust in a different way. So they could be great, right? But most of us behave in a good way. So to get the learner there, you first got to say, hey, you know, we all make inferences and assumptions. And that's quickly easy to do. You know, you can have an inference test where people make all these inferences and you say, look, and then you show them like the ladder of inference, how we move from data to selecting data to assumptions, conclusions, and forming beliefs. And then you can have them explore another person's ladder and show that. And so you can get people to quickly realize, yeah, I just have a perspective. And then what's cool is you, we have this activity where we have a list of hot topics. and not that hot, but topics like, you know, I think vegan stuff is nonsense, or I think prison should be, uh, college should be free or whatever the issue is. And the other party selects a topic that they have some interest in, that they have a point of view in, and then they're required to ask questions to a different point of view. Mm. So I'll play the other point of view and adults simply cannot ask a good open-ended curious question about a topic that they have they believe they're right in. The questions are leading questions, don't you think? Wouldn't you agree? How about, you know, it's just we struggle. We can be curious and th- stuff we don't know about. But once we have a point of view, we really get in our own way. Yeah, I love that. And curiosity was one of the
0: things that was you were called out for when you were in your sales career at Dow, when you were in that rising star. And I remember you telling me it was that curiosity that really set you apart from all the other salespeople. Tell us a little bit about what happened there.
1: Yeah, and it was was a blessing, right? These are all hidden blessings. So I get hired by Dow, and it's all a lot of chemical engineers, chemistry degrees, technical experts. And there's little old me, you know, with a University of Maryland marketing degree. And I'm going out, and I'm actually – the most success, one of the most successful salespeople in the company, and they had a rating system. And, anyways, I was. I was just simply was, and I was because I would ask questions, uh, cause and you know, cause I didn't know anything. But turns out, surprise, surprise, something we all know: people like to talk about themselves. People like to talk about what they do. They like to talk about their machinery. Now I wasn't going around acting like a complete idiot, but I was like, geez, you know, I don't know much about this operation. Can you, you know, why, why did you, why do you do it this way versus a different way? And people would, would talk. So early on, I realized, you know, let the client talk. I do believe that salespeople work way too hard. Yeah. By that, I mean, they're just talking too much. Just ask questions and let them talk. They'll come to you, you know? So it's just, so I was, I was lucky. I was lucky not to have that knowledge. There is a curse of knowledge. There is the technical expertise trap the more i knew the less curious i got there were people steve who would say i would never ask that question because yeah. you should know that but i don't know it <laughs> So even so,
0: if you did know it you should still ask the question
1: yeah and it's not fake it till you make it and it's not um a lot of technical salespeople. by the way what they do having observed them now year after year they'll they'll hide their technical expertise in the question yeah you know What do you think about a high membrane ion exchange system? It's like, okay, what are you doing there? What what is that? (laughs) You're trying to show what you know in your question. That's terrible. So, yeah, it was a good blessing to to be be who I was at that time.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's an interesting notion, the whole sales thing. So, you know, at some point in my future, I'm going to regurgitate this in – either in articles or maybe even another book, but this this whole notion of if you want to be really successful at selling, don't sell. Yes. <laughs> you know, be cur- be curious. Ask questions. Find out. Learn. And by default, if you have a product that helps fill those gaps and problems and solutions, then people will buy it from you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I I, I would say the other part of that, which I'm sure you agree, is listen. Yeah, absolutely. There's a it starts with one point one, right? Yeah. There's a there's a a colleague of mine has a great quote that the customer will tell you what your next question should be. What I see, you know, because of what, how people have been trained is that they prepare a list of questions and they're going to be consultative, but they're really not consultative. They're quasi consultative because they're only asking questions about stuff that drives to a sale. Right. And these, they go through the question in order. And so the, the buyer could say anything to answer the first question. And it's, there's no, let's chase that rabbit. They go right to the second question, right to the third. So they're not, they're not really listening and then going in a conversation. So we're doing a lot of work now on just how do you have a conversation? We, yeah. need to, we need to untrain salespeople on how do you have a consultative sales call where you ask questions and then, you know, position yourself versus having a conversation that is much more
0: fluid. It's ironic, isn't it, that if you've got a list of 10 power questions or whatever, you know, the buzzword in that organization is, <laughs> you can't be listening because you're queuing your next question.
1: Oh, it's, it's even worse than that. I and mean, we have insight selling and hypothesis selling, and it all makes great sense. The idea that before I go in, I ought to have a point of view. And I agree with that. I go in with a point of view, but it's so hard to unwind somebody that, you know, your point of view could be wrong, Yeah, right? Your point of view is not objectively right. Um, and so they just having a point of view going in, they get trapped by their own point of view.
0: Goes back to your perceptions and assumptions. Yes, exactly right. So in your latest book, the Five Lost Superpowers title, which of course I absolutely love, and it's around why we lose them and how to get them back. And you talk about these five key elements that, as leaders, if we were thoughtful of them, we could pay attention if we started to lose them or indeed lost them. But here, tactically, how we could put them right. And I wondered, John, if we could just spin through each of those five just to get a sense of how I might pay attention to them and notice them and maybe ca- tactically how I might go about fixing them. First one, ironically, is curiosity.
1: Yeah, a fan favorite with me, of course, curiosity. And it was the first one that I came up with. So years ago, I would say I would teach it as a lost superpower in the sales training. And of course, sometimes at one point I said, there must be at least five (laughs) hours. And so I got a team together and we brainstormed and we came up with these five and they had to be independent. They had to be research-based. I mean, it wasn't just an opinion. Uh, It had to be something grounded in research. Curiosity uh, is for leaders. I mean, it's critical, right? It gets back to this. You don't know everything. One reason why leaders make terrible coaches We actually ask this question, Steve, you know, we ask people, what do you have to believe to coach somebody? And people will say, oh, that they're motivated, that they have skills, they have capability. They miss the most important thing that you have to believe to coach somebody. And that is that the person you're coaching knows something you don't know. Otherwise, why would you ask questions except for to lead them? But we act like we know it all. It's just a human condition. We act like we know everything. You know, um, and so curiosity is critical to be more curious about why this person's behaving the way doing this thing. You know, how did that get done? How can we leverage that? The, what we talk, it all gets squelched, by the way. All most of these get squelched, you know, in school. Yeah. And with our parents, right. Our, we have our parents to blame. We have society to blame. I mean, it's just, you know, we're we're just constantly being told Yeah, you know, we, we grow up. We're wildly curious. And all of a sudden we stop asking questions and we're rewarded for answers and all that good stuff. We say here, you know, cast a wide net, you know, so have a lot of, you know, read fiction. <laughs> That'll make you more, uh a, make more a variety of things that, that fiction does, but, you know, cast a wide net, read a lot of different things, be a person of interest, right? That you read a lot of different things, you know, ask better questions, questions that make the other person think, questions that demonstrate you really care, not just how's your day going, which, you know, do you really care? Do you really want to know? Is that the best you can come up with? <laughs> um, yeah. You know. Uh, so there's better questions in there. There's perspective seeking, of course, you know, your own perspective. You love your own perspective. You want <laughs> Great. Good for you. <laughs> Who cares? Exactly. Find out a different perspective and learn something.
0: Yeah, that's really you know? neat.
1: And, and then, uh, of course, the whole system is sort of designed, you know, uh, I came across mm-hmm. this in the research. I can't remember the researcher, but explore then exploit. Like the idea is we explore stuff and then as we get older, we exploit what we, you know, to get, to make money, to make a living, to do that. And we sort of lose that explore part. Yeah. Uh, so I like the explore exploit idea. They continue to explore.
0: I like that too. Yeah. Your second lost superpower is resilience. Now, if ever there was time, we needed to grab hold of some resilience. It's now, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's doable, right? It's teachable. It's it's not something that if you're not resilient, uh it's not a fixed state right it's, it's all learnable the key things around resilience are always you know the network your tribe your group do i have a group that supports me or do i have a group that that brings me down in other words when things are going bad they say hey, you can get through this or they say yeah you know they took advantage of you you ought to leave you know they don't they don't they don't like you you know what group am i hanging around so the tribe matters um of course optimism right having an optimistic viewpoint and that's all the you know, is this permanent? Is this temporary? Can I get through this? But there's an optimism. Uh, Seligman from University of Pennsylvania calls explanatory styles. How do I explain things when they happen to me? Do I explain them as I'm a victim or do I explain them as in a different way that's more optimistic? Uh, of course, meaning, finding meaning what you do with what you do is a way to get the resilience, find something of meaning. So there are techniques. Uh, and of course, being present, Yeah, you know, being mindful, being in the moment. Uh, I, I don't subscribe to, I don't subscribe to, you know, go out and meditate. I'm not one of those person. you know, you're going to meditate every day. Cause I think it's all up to us. I had cancer four times. I'm almost always in the moment. Yeah. I should,
0: I should well imagine that
1: gives you a sense of focus that, that yes. meditation just won't give you. Right. People, people will say, Oh, you know, I'm like, I'm always in the moment. Where else, where else? I don't even know. But I know that people are other places. They're worrying. There's, you know, they're, Whatever that words are I'm searching for, but you know they're worrying about the future. They're thinking about the past. But I'm pretty much in the moment. So, <laughs> and you have to decide for yourself. Now we're not necessarily good right, at self assessments, but nevertheless, you have to figure out what, what's going to work for you. Yeah. But the point is, you want to be um, you want to be present when it comes to resilience, and it's
0: got to be right for you. There's no good trying to read a journal or replicate somebody else's behavior so it doesn't fit for you, right?
1: Yeah, context is king, which is you know sort of how. It's the number one premise of my company. When I went through training in the chemical industry, what I was shocked to find out and still happens is that, you know, a training company built something, let's say, in 1980. And there you are in 2021. And it's the same program being delivered to you. And voila, they just happen to have designed an 80 for you. It's just it's the silly season. Right. I mean, nothing off the shelf was designed for you. Does it have value? I guess some. But we all want to be considered unique. We want to be appreciated. We want to be respected. And you do that by understanding the context and, you know, treating me with some respect versus treating me as an empty vessel that you've got to fill with a model.
0: Sure. Now, authenticity is your third superpower that we've lost. Now, it's interesting because 10 years ago, everyone was blogging around authenticity and it's almost become a little bit cliche in so much as a little bit overused, perhaps. How do you think we did end up losing some focus around authenticity and how do we get it back?
1: Yeah, I, I, that's a good question because it does. Well I, mean, well, I think it's anything. So authenticity is just the latest, you know, in the bag that is the answer, right? So unfortunately, there is this desire for simple answers to complex problems. Yeah. So the simple answer is empathy. Or the simple answer is grit. The simple answer is purpose the simple answer you know it just drives me up the wall frankly as a learning professional the way that and the and these people participate in it i mean the people that create this stuff you know don't say no this isn't this is just an answer it's not the answer yeah. no they go they fall in it this is the answer uh it's just it's so i think authenticity you're right it was in the mill uh and it got it i think it gets it because And there's people know when they see it, and there's genuine authenticity and transparency, and there's something that you learned in a classroom that you're trying out, which by definition isn't authentic. <laughs> because-
0: exactly. You know what the other funny you know, the other funny thing I hear a lot is, "I'm going to be my authentic self." Well, one, if you're having to tell me that, then you're probably not going yep. to be, uh, and because you've given it a label, you're probably
1: not going to be. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I I always think I've operated under. And I teach this to people, so you know there's a better version of yourself, right? That's what we're all after, right? We're after a, a better version of ourselves. That's the right language. Uh, and there is a better version of yourself, right? When you when you fly off the handle, you know there's a better version of you that wouldn't have flown off the handle. When you were gossiping, there's a better version of yourself that doesn't gossip. <laughs> Whatever it is, there's a better version. So all we're after is what's the best? You, know, you want to be the best version of yourself, uh, and that best version of yourself, you know, is 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 authentically you it's it's your true self that we're after so we uh we have a relationship with a company called the wise advocate the idea that there is this wise advocate inside of us all Mm -hmm. you know there's two mental pathways one is the habitual sort of reactive how do I get out of the situation the other one gets in the executive center what's the right thing and what we want to encourage people is to take that other path and 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 think about you know is this decision is this behavior aligned with my best true self
0: yeah, absolutely spot on. Allied with that is compassion, which is your next lost superpower. Tell us a bit about that.
1: Well, compassion's probably my favorite. Now, again, I had other authors, so I, sh- I should have said this earlier. Not just me, but there was Karina Chase. Uh, she, with authenticity, Linnae wrote uh, resilience. Andrew Reed, uh, my son, wrote the, the chapter on compassion. So we, I have other authors here, which I should have mentioned earlier. Uh, compassion. I love compassion and I'll tell you why I love compassion because I was tired of empathy a little bit <laughs> <laughs> on so many levels. Of-
0: so here's the thing. What's the difference then between empathy and compassion? Is there a difference?
1: Well, you know, yeah, there is a big difference and it depends on whose definition. So everything becomes definitional. But I think the majority of people would agree that compassion is empathy with action. Nice. Empathy is I I, I feel your pain. I, I, can, I can take that perspective. I, I, I feel what you must be going through. But I don't do anything about it, except for verbally, maybe acknowledge it. Compassion has risk because now I put myself in that situation as personal risk. I I take action. So compassion is, I think, what it's ultimately what we get judged on, not what you say, but what you do. And we want to encourage people to take more action in an inclusive environment. It's not like sitting around going, oh, you know, it's got to be tough. And I know, you know, I've thought about this a lot and being different. thats But what am I going to do about it? You know, am I going to become an ally? Am I going to risk my neck? Am I going to say something? You know, that's where compassion. So, compassion's is the right word, yeah. and I think yeah. compassion is the next authenticity. Unfortunately, yeah. so as, as you as you point out, that authenticity might be dated. Compassion might be I might be cutting edge on compassion. Yeah. <laughs> um, I remember so part of my uh, problem with empathy, and this is debatable, but I had cancer four times, and I did not want empathy. I wanted sympathy. Yeah, big difference too. I wanted people and Brene Brown acts like sympathy is some horrific thing. And I'm like, she's wrong about this. She's brilliant. I, lo- I think she's brilliant, but she can be wrong. Right. And I don't know. I would like to have her on the, uh, the podcast now to explain. Maybe I'm understanding her <laughs> yeah. wrong, but, but all I know is in that moment, I wanted sympathy. I don't want you to say, Oh, I know what it must like to have cancer four times. You have no idea. You just have no idea. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you look foolish. And why are you putting yourself into my pain? If you're not going to do something about it, if you're just going to place yourself. So the other thing about empathy that is problematic, uh, Steve, is that we are empathetic to people who are like us. This is the us-them quandary. I'm very empathetic to people that look like me, act like me, or in my socioeconomic. It's the thems that I have trouble with, right? Humans now, not me personally. But, you know, that doesn't get talked about enough. We get told either we're not empathetic, which is not true. And we know it's not true because we are empathetic <laughs> or, you know, so we ought to be told, Hey, what we teach empathy. We do. And we do uh, in terms of uh, emotional intelligence, we say, look, you're wildly empathetic. You now we tell that to the participants, right? Cause they are when it comes to people like them. So we say, Hey, here's the data. Here's your empathetic. Uh Oh, here's the bad news. You know? So we have to expand. We have to have a different way of viewing the thems in a more inclusive way or a more belonging way to think about the others in order for us to tap into our empathy.
0: And for me, compassion is a little bit more experiential as well. It means I'm actually really thinking and immersing myself into that situation so that I can change either a behavior or a skill or indeed my approach to other people in different situations, right?
1: Yeah, it takes it takes bravery. I mean, uh, we all of our the five lost superpowers, what we what we did was we made a tool, you know, we have the superpower theme. So we try to carry that through the book in some degree that wasn't hokey. But for each of these superpowers, we have like a tool belt and the tool belt for a compassion is BAM. And the B stands for brave, right? It takes a level of bravery to be compassionate.
0: It does. Yeah. Because you put yourself out there, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're putting yourself out there. Yeah. Yeah. You're taking personal risk. I mean, he took personal risk, obviously, again and again and again. So, yeah, compassion is 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 very, uh, very deserving of being a superpower.
0: Your last lost superpower, I absolutely love, and I'm really excited to kick this around with you. And it's the whole notion of playfulness. Now, as kids, we had no boundaries, and we would have done this willingly, vast majority anyway. <laughs> and, and yet it's something that when we get to become – more mature and we get careers and jobs, we, we do less and it can unlock such a lot of greatness in our lives and work. Just wondered if what your take on that would be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I loved playfulness because, you know, I'm writing a book for business people and, you know, there's risk, right? With playfulness, we're, you know, we don't want to be silly and, you know, uh, we're adults now and we shouldn't be playing and, and what, what do you, you know, that sounds like a waste of time. I mean, the biggest thing is that being playful sounds like a waste of time, you know? Uh, But in fact, if we look at imagination, we look at creativity, we look at innovation, there's a sense of playfulness you have to have. So we went playfulness versus the other words. And it really comes, I mean, the first time I came upon playfulness in the business context, when I was reading, unfortunately, the, the report about the towers 9-11 report. And, you know, they, it starts with, it was a lack of imagination. And I thought, wow. That's, you know, we never could see that happening. We weren't imaginative enough. We were, you know, which lends itself to we're taking ourselves so seriously that we couldn't just like go there and think wildly. Um, And then as I got in the business world, I, I ran into this theory by Lev Bogotsky that really transformed our thinking around this. Lev Bogotsky was a Russian psychologist who talked about children on the playground playing a head taller meaning he observed that five-year-olds played like eight-year-olds and eight-year-olds played like 12-year-olds. We took that quote to mean that young people, kids when on a playground would take these risks. They played ahead taller. They, 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 you know, took risks. They, but eventually we play ahead shorter and, and that's tragic, right? Mm. We don't take those risks. We don't extend ourselves. It's not the best version of ourselves again. And so, um, that really struck me, and then when I looked at like things like brainstorming, and I always I always had this resistance to brainstorming, this idea that great ideas come in this antiseptic where no ideas are judged and everybody's ideas the same. And I always thought, boy, when people are being creative, they're, they're having fun, they're laughing, they're making fun of your idea. That's a stupid idea. I always, you know, it's 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 just like we forgot to have fun. Now it needs to be safe and people need to be respected and talented, but you can interrupt people and laugh at some idea or, you know, be a fool yourself. And I think you get more creative than, uh, than what we've been led to believe by a lot of this stuff. So, uh, and I think we know that now to even to a large degree, but playful is an exciting one to think about. It's not being silly. It's not, it's just not taking ourselves so seriously. And there is a gift of going second, I love this idea, Steve. I don't know if you ever heard of it. But if I, as a leader, can be playful and make fun of myself, I'll give you an example. Can I give you an example real quick? Yep. Yeah,
0: please shoot for it, yeah.
1: So I used to go, I'm, I'm, I'm six foot four and I weigh too much, but I, I went paintballing once in the woods and there was a tree and I tried to hide behind the tree, but the tree was a small tree. And so people were pelting me with paintballs because I wasn't, they could see me. Well, years later, years later, I find this picture of a bear hiding behind a tree. So I send it to all my employees. I say, this is me at the paintball game. <laughs> now they thought it was funny, but that allows them to be silly. So that's the gift of going second. If you as the leader can say, you know, we're all human. We have foibles. We do stupid stuff. I'm I'm like you. It's all, I think it allows everybody to, and you get people's, again, you get their best self at work. You get their playful self, their imaginative self, the try this self, a uh, sense of that I can take risk you know, that I'm not, you know, not everything is life or death. I mean, I think you want that in your environment. So playfulness, uh, I'm glad you liked that chapter. And I think yeah. it, it deserves some own space.
0: And also, it's this is not about whether somebody's introverted or extroverted, because there's also an unconscious assumption that if I'm introverted, I can't be playful. <laughs> it's just a different style of playfulness.
1: Yeah. No, I'm, I'm one of those uh, introverts who can do extroversion obviously by the pace at which i talk and all this but i am you know much more regenerated when i'm alone reading thinking or small groups than i am in large crowds so i think even as a you know it's where you get your energy from that's right and it's it's so easy to judge somebody quickly or you're an extrovert and like see you don't even know what it means and that's not good and why are you putting me in that box and what does that mean anyway (laughs) I don't know. But it happens all the time, right? Oh, yeah. We love boxes. We love, we're trying to make the <laughs> labels simple. labels yeah. and boxes. Yeah. And you're one of them. And your disc style is this. And your insight style is that. And therefore this. And you do that. and It's like, oh, my gosh. What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, listen, I'm delighted we had the chance to spin through those. We'll give you an opportunity at the end of the show so we can connect people to find a copy and, and the rest of what you do. Before we do that, though, just going to turn the tables a little bit. Now, you've been a successful leader in lots of different businesses, including, of course, leading your own successful group. So I'm going to tap into your leadership thinking, your leadership brain right now, John. And I'd like you to distill those down to your top three leadership hacks. What would they be?
1: Uh, I would say what we did, which was very clever of me by accident, I think, was, you know, we didn't declare values until we live them. So I had a company that was going on for four or five years. And I said, OK, what are our values? Because. And we have great, you know, give grace, have a perspective, you know, but we we actually live the values before we declared them. Uh, So I like that. I like the idea. Well, I like the idea of having alignment. Right. If you're going to say you're about this, you got to hold yourself accountable to that uh, because people are going to look to when you're not. So I think as a leader, you always want to be very clear. You don't want to leave it to people try to figure it out. You want to be able to articulate. Here's what matters to me and here's what it looks like. So people have trust in you. So there's, there's building a trust. I would say the other one related to trust, because trust is the coin of the realm as a leader, you've got to show an interest in the whole person. So if they say, hey, I'd like to take off my dog's sick, you got to ask, oh, what's wrong with your dog? Most leaders are like, okay, no problem. Yeah. You know, you can work later or something tomorrow. You know, they, they miss the opportunity to build a human to human connection. And then they wonder why people, don't trust them, don't like them, don't confide in them, don't leave, you know. Well, because you just missed all these report cues.
0: Compassion again, of course.
1: Yeah, it's it's just taking that extra step and show you're listening and, oh. And that doesn't mean you have to care about this person's dog. No, what you care about is this person, and you know that to care about this person, have a relationship, the dog's important to them, so I'm going to ask about the dog. People get all caught up in it. That that's not authentic. That's not me. I don't care about dogs. now. you do care about a relationship though, right? So get out of your own way and ask about the dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's, there's rapport building. There's aligning your values or whatever it is. I think the last one, and this is where the training industry always gets it wrong. I'm not wrong. I shouldn't say that. But candor is a compliment. Mm. Being honest with people about their performance is a compliment, good and bad. Oh my gosh, I could talk so much about this. If you do nothing else, start recognizing people more when they do something right. Thank them. That was great. I like how you did this. That makes having the difficult conversation so much easier. Exactly. You can just go right into it because you, have you've, you know, you've got that you've done that. You've told them when they're good. It's much harder when you've never said anything good to them. And now you want to deliver some bad news. Yeah. And then you try to hide good news in it and create that infamous crap sandwich. Yeah. So, People that work for me never have to wonder what I'm thinking about their performance. They just don't. That burden's gone. Sometimes I'll say, wow, that's terrible. Oh, don't do that again. What was that? You know, it's, but I do it in a playful way. And, you know, we shank that one. We talk about that in the book, shankopotamus. I shank that one. Um, But that's what you want to do as a leader. You want to recognize people and then be honest about their performance. People deserve honesty. People deserve to be treated like adults, not children, and they deserve the truth in a way they can hear it, not just let it all hang out, but in a way that is intentional about the way they can hear it.
0: Love that. Great advice. Next part of the show, John, we call it hack to attack. Now, this is typically where something in your life or work hasn't worked out, but as a result, the experience you're now using as a force of good. Now we've already talked about surviving cancer four times as four, 100 active attacks just there. Right. But if there was a moment in your life where you look back and think, well, that was definitely something that was pivotal for me, what would that have been?
1: I think the moments that are pivotal in my career were when I was under stress and I didn't deal with things in the best way. Um, And that happened a lot. (laughs) And so So as much as I said I was mindful in the moment, I still had stress, right? Because you have cancer, you've got kids, you have kids in college. And I worked for some managers who were great. And I worked for some managers who were really not good human beings. They were really, you know, dysfunctional human beings. And those dysfunctional human beings got to me. Mm And one of them made me cry. I was like 50 years old or 45 years old. I don't know. It's a long time. It was like 45 years old. I'm crying because this person is making my life hell. Um, And... was funny when I did my ex interview I said you know you made me cry he said do you think I meant to and I said I don't know what you meant to do all I know is I cried (laughs) you know and I've never cried before but I think those turning moments are you know not dealing with it trying to wish it away not taking control of it not taking action on it but just becoming a little bit of a victim right where you look at things that are being done to me and and losing your sense of agency and i that's where I first fell in love with the word agency, right? That we, we have to have agency and we don't have agency. We're so helpless until so we've, re, we got to regain it. If we don't have it, we got to find a way to regain it.
0: And that's where it will make you stronger
1: and you'll become more resilient and more effective yep. as a result of the learning that you get from that experience. Sure. And I want to give people agency. I want them to know everything. I mean, I tell my employees, we just had a meeting and I, here's all the numbers. Here's everything you need to know. Here's everything I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, You're you're making choices with full information. It's not like you don't – because you're an adult and you're entitled to that and you have agency and I want you to know how we're doing.
0: Yeah, definitely so. It's
1: the right thing to do.
0: Hmm. So the last thing we get to do today is we get you to do some time travel. Bump into John at 21 and give him some advice. What would your words of wisdom to him then be?
1: Well, I would say to John at 21, there's some things about you that – the world is going to say is wrong, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's your secret sauce. So there was the secret sauce was, I was always authentic. Uh, I was never anybody but me. Uh, I was always curious and always playful. I think those three qualities I had from the beginning, what I would tell 21 year old me is, you know, it's not about you, though. Right. I mean, I was I was that guy. I was a little bit too much of that. Hey, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look what you know. And, and uh, nobody likes that guy. And also there was a better version of me, a, a sort of a more controlled, more. I used to walk in a room of people. I'll give you this is what I would tell younger me. You know, you, I would walk in a room, a group of people, 21 and probably just start talking. <laughs> and I would defend that behavior by saying, well, that's me. And the people around me go, that's John. Look at John. Isn't John? Who, no, only John can walk in a room and just start talking. But, you know, there's a good pe- percent of people in the room are like, you know, I hate John. John's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking and John interrupted me. Yeah. And that this John that some of you like is not is kind of a jerk. And it, it took me a while to realize that, that you can be authentically John without being a jerk. Yeah. And. You know, that's. I think that's what I would tell 21-year-old John. I hope he would listen. He wasn't a good listener either, 21-year-old John.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, the good it kind of all figured out at the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, listen, I've really loved chatting, and I could spend all day chatting, albeit our listeners will probably drop off about now because this is typically where our shows uh, kind of run to and from. But before we wrap up our conversation today, how can we make sure our global audience can connect with you and the work that you do, maybe get a copy of some of the books?
1: yeah please uh please reach out uh a couple of ways one is the website www.jmreadgroupreidgroup.com uh and my uh, here's my i'll give my email can i do that steve cuz yeah, I, I know you are really um, connecting with people so please do. it's john j o h n @ j m r e i d group.com and uh, please email me any emails i get uh, I'll send a copy of the book if it's in the, you know, in the United States of America area. <laughs> um, but we're, the book's also available. <laughs> Hashtag expensive but, international postage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we're on Amazon. Uh, we've had good success with uh, the second book and the first book. So, you know, they're readily available. We're going to have an audio version coming out, I think, in the next month.
0: Sure thing. We'll make sure that the links to your books as well as to the January group and your email are in our show notes. So folk can click straight into when we're done. Great. Thank you, Steve. John, I've had a ball and thank you ever so much for being part of our community. Wish you ever success. I know that uh, you are in the moment and I know that there are some great things ahead for for you and the January group. So thanks for being part of our community. Thank you. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote, an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush and I've been the Leadership Hacker.